0: Uh, Ever since I was healed through cataract surgery, I can see 20-20, long vision, but short vision, I need these all the time. And as I look out at you, I say, boy, are you ever looking good? I see that no one's come in their pajamas. Your hair has been brushed, at least for the most part, for most of you. Uh, You look fresh. It might be because it's a little cold. I was going to wear my gloves up here, but... And thought, oh, well, you know, it's good that it's cold. I don't think many of you will be dozing off this morning. <clears throat> I've shaved, i brushed my teeth. I only shave on Sunday, Monday, and Wednesday and Friday, much to Louisa's chagrin. I think she likes it every day, but I've washed my hair. I put this gel in that makes it look like I've got more than that's actually there. I'm wearing shoes that I reserve for weddings and funerals because I wanted to use it in this opening story. <clears throat> We've become prepared to be at church today. I don't know, maybe some of you grew up in my era where people wear suits. My mom would wear a hat to church every Sunday. I'll never forget the Sunday. She was frantically looking for her hat. Where's my hat? Where's my hat? we had to tell her mom, it's on your head. And literally, she didn't see it on her head. We always want to come and be presentable when we're at a, a community function, especially a community function like this in the house of God. And I suspect that you also, like me, Have done your best to make sure that you're presentable to God today. However, there's times in our attempt to be presentable before God where we can, quote-unquote, dress ourselves up before God in a way that really masks who we are. Well, this was the case of the man in the uh, crowd that petitioned Jesus in our parable this morning, and I'm going to read that now from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. Yeah, my long-term range sight isn't as good. I've got to read it right out of the scripture here. Someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, well, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we hear this unnamed man is being cheated out of his inheritance. He asks Jesus for help. It's a reasonable thing. It's a legitimate request. We have no reason to believe uh, it isn't. His uh, rabbis at that time, and Jesus was a rabbi, that's what teacher means, We're often asked to judge over disputes. Teacher, rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And if you've had brothers, you know how you can fight over money very easily. Well, context is very important. Just prior to our text, the disciples come to Jesus looking for help and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Uh, This man in our text was likely in that crowd with the disciples. <clears throat> very likely he could have been there. And Luke, uh, and when he gives Jesus his response, he edits it, so it reads slightly different from that in Matthew's Gospel, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Luke reduces the number of petitions in the prayer from six to five. Now at the very center of the prayer is the simple request, give us each day our daily bread. Jesus goes on to tell a parable about someone coming to a friend in the middle of the night asking for three loaves of bread. Because of their persistence, the friend grants the request. And Jesus concludes that parable saying, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. So here what Jesus does in this parable that we, I just considered, uh, he reduces prayer to asking for what we need. We're to pray, give us each day our daily bread. Now this particular prayer takes humility. If we don't acknowledge our poverty, if we don't recognize our basic needs, including our need of God, then we can't participate in the fullness of the new free life that God longs to lavish on us in Christ. So when this unnamed man cheated out of his inheritance, asks Jesus for help. He's only doing what Jesus taught. Ask and you will receive, said Jesus. He follows the teaching of Jesus to the letter. But it didn't work. Instead, his prayer is met with an abrupt dismissal. And I like what it says in the message. Mr., says Jesus, what makes you think it's any of my business to be a judge or mediator for you? And I think, talk about embarrassing. If you back up to the first verse of chapter 12, there were thousands present, that said. So in front of thousands of people, Jesus calls this guy out. And we're scratching our heads because this isn't the usual tact Jesus uses when approaching people. Well, things go from bad to worse for that man. Jesus then turns from the man who asked the request to the crowd, and he says, and again from the message, take care, protect yourself against the least bit of greed. Life is not defined by what you have, even if you have a lot. What Jesus does here is he discerns something's off in this man's request for justice. He discerns an underlying motive of greed. Now, we can learn that this man's request, I'm sorry, we learn from this man's request that Jesus isn't a literalist. We can pray prayers that are literally right, but heartfully wrong. Jesus reads our hearts and not our lips. The man appears to have a passion for justice, but Jesus detects a virus of sin called selfishness. More often than we care to admit, we too can disguise sin, uh, I'm sorry, we can disguise sin as a spiritual concern. We can actually be drawn into those sins that come packaged as virtues. Jesus was no stranger to this kind of temptation, was he? Remember in the wilderness, how the devil wrapped temptation in what is good? What did he wrap temptation in? Scripture. Well, there's more here for us to consider. The man who makes a request for justice appears to be very, very different from the man Jesus creates in the parable. He he addresses Jesus directly, asking him for help. The man in the parable speaks not to God, but only to himself. The man denied his basic rights, found he was in need. The man Jesus describes in the parable has more than he needs. The man came to Jesus in distress. The man in the parable feels that he can take it easy and have the time of his life. Well, the parable seems to be somewhat off from the obvious, doesn't it? Just enough to get us thinking. Just enough to draw us into the story. And that's why Jesus tells lots of parables, especially in Luke and Matthew. Filled with parables, he draws you into the stories. And when you read a parable, it doesn't kind of impose something on you rather it invites you it invites something from within you and we don't have to understand what the parable's saying we just have to let it sit there and percolate and i don't know how many times you've heard this story but you could hear it over and over again you read it over and over again in your quiet times and then finally in time the parable works its way into our subconsciousness and exposes in us a virus of selfishness of one form or another. Now, I say one form or another because I want to be very clear about something here. Jesus isn't singling out the rich or even money itself. Selfishnesses can be found, as we all know, among the rich and the poor. We normally think of wealth as, and poverty as to do with our possessions, what we have, the money we have in the bank. Well, Jesus teaches that wealth and poverty... Are also conditions of our inner life. And in the later, Jesus, in the parable, Jesus warns us, and I like how they put it in the message, of the perils of filling our barns, filling our inner life with self and not with God. And I like how Peterson in the message puts self, he puts a capital on it, like it's a God. When I uh, came to our third church in Richmond, British Columbia, uh, we moved there at the time uh, when the, there was an influx of foreign money. And uh, we saw all these, actually whole neighborhoods just leveled. Homes just like the ones we had been renting. Uh, we didn't own a home at that time. Uh, they were beautiful homes, wonderful homes. And they were leveling down and, and they built what we called, went to call monster homes. They would have two or three uh, garage ports, and, and sometimes in front you'd see two or three beautiful cars, Lexus, BMWs, etc. nice cars like that. Uh, and our kids at their school, uh, we sent them to a Christian school. Uh, the, the students that came to school came in BMWs, Lexus, cars that we could never afford. I mean, we'd never paid that kind of money for a car. Oh, we were tight financially. Yet I, I don't know what you pay Pastor Ken here, but... We were not in it for the money. <laughs> uh, but I kind of lost my way when I saw all that. I kind of saw my spiritual antibodies, my spiritual defenses go down. And here I was feeling, oh, woe is me. I need more. Our early pastor was making fifteen to $20,000 more than I was. Uh, just being honest here, please. Uh, don't judge me. <laughs> Uh, Well, you can't judge me if you want. I've been forgiven. (laughs) Uh, And I began to feel a real discontentment. And then when we moved to the next church where I was a lead pastor, I figured, okay, well, I'm going to make more money here. And at the end of the interview process, they started talking about salary. I told them what I made in our last church. He says, oh, that's more money than we ever paid a lead pastor here. (laughs) Well, lo and behold... God began to transform my heart. Uh, Through the people he brought into the pews. Uh, I think I've mentioned this to you, refugees, uh, people living on the streets, literally a guy came living in a tent for three years to our church. Uh, We had people with huge mental health issues. It was a blue-collar church, and all of a sudden, Louise and I found, instead of craving for more, we found contentment. And we found that our our giving needed more. It's amazing what God did in bringing that kind of uh, stuff to our life. But I say, no one, no one is uh, free from this kind of temptation. Well, if poverty is a recognition of what we need, then wealth is the, the abundance of what we have. And let's say this, Christians are blessed, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, with many riches in Christ. And I like... Well, we've been singing about them this morning. If we mean it from our hearts, we've been singing about the wealth we have. But Paul says, we're blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of the sins. We're free from shame, as I loved it in one, that one a song that we sang. No shame, no guilt. By the riches of God's grace, we're given the Holy Spirit to seal our fate for all eternity. We sang about that and bless the Lord. We're made alive in Christ, Paul says in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he says Christ actually dwells in our hearts. The creator of the universe, become a human being, through his spirit, dwells in our hearts. And, and now because of that, we can grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of, of Christ, and we can know this love. We can know it in an increasing measure, which is beyond understanding, says Paul. So it's a life, eternity journey of knowing the love of God. That's the riches we have in Christ. They're meant for us to enjoy. Uh, When we walk in the fullness of spirit, we as Christians think more. We do more. Therefore, when we're in Christ in the fullness of the spirit, we become more. We become more like Christ. We become more like the human beings God intended us to be. And uh, we are fully alive. At the same time, we've been given the responsibility to share these spiritual riches with others. And here's the thing, the moment we become liable to selfishness, uh, I'm sorry, the moment we enter into the state of wealth through the gospel in our, into our relationship with God, uh, we become liable to selfishness. There's no avoiding the wealth. It's always there. God wants to lavish it on us. Anytime we ask God for the filling of His Spirit, He'll pour those well, that wealth into our lives. Yes, but at the same time, selfishness is always present to do um, with the nature of sin within us. It's like a virus. I had my flu shot. I was a little concerned about what Mike I grabbed him because Sheldon said he had, had a cold, but he says, don't worry, you won't catch it. <laughs> and for the most part, you and I have the spiritual antibodies we need, especially if we're living in discipleship. uh, As Jason was saying, they want to teach you a freedom session, how to do that, if if you really go for that. That's really the thing we're after here. But there are those times when our defenses are down and we become susceptible to this virus. And I say not only in Richmond was I susceptible to it, but now that I'm in retirement, income's changed. I'm susceptible to it. I've got to keep my guard up. Because when we give in to this virus, we find God showing up saying, Fool, tonight you die, and your barn full of goods, who gets it? That's what happens, says Jesus, when you fill your barn with self and not with God. Now, isn't that a description of the culture and time in which we live? A number of years ago, a researcher by the name of George Varna claimed that by the year 2025, historians are likely to say the year 2001 was right around the time when the era of moral and spiritual anarchy began. Varna predicted that of all the changes likely to occur before 2025, moral chaos will have the most devastating impact on Western civilization. Well, moral chaos is certainly alive and well today. Uh, I think we've never seen people more polarized, in the conflict that arises—you can see it in any kind of protest. People begin protests with; a lot of them are, are for good reasons. But we see, and uh, it's very vivid in, in France. If you've been following this yellow uh, vest protests that have been for 13 Saturdays in a row, we see this mob mentality. Uh, cars are burned. Storefronts are destroyed. Police are met with a hill of rocks. Cities are literally held hostage by protesters. Cities become war zones. Sounds like Vancouver after the Canucks lost to the Bruins. It literally was like that. I mean, people just mob mentality. Police respond with rubber bullets, pepper spray, and tear gas. But there's more than just that to the moral chaos. We live in a time when people pick and choose what they want to believe. They express their beliefs any way they see fit. There's fake news, which can be fake news, but it also can be real news that's bad news, so people call it fake news. Then there's leaders who deliberately, barefaced, lie to the media right before people's eyes, and they use it as an ends to a, a means to an end. And then we're bombarded by the entertainment industry with the gospel that anything goes. And we see charity toward people living on the margins drying up. I'm so grateful that we're going to be involved with another refugee family, shouting. Because a lot of that is drying up all over the world. Uh, We're seeing uh, God systematically removed from public forums, not just from schools, but from everywhere in in, in, uh, culture. And I'm referring only to North America. When you look at what's happening in some of those nations where there's... uh, oppression by leadership, why all these refugees are being driven out of countries. We see just how insane it is. People have abandoned traditional values like loyalty, compassion, accountability, and sacrifice. They now cling to those values that best align with their beliefs. Personal happiness, tolerance, which is not what I learned as the, the word tolerance growing up, comfort, instant gratification the right to choose as we please god has been marginalized and worship itself has been replaced by self-interest that's our culture today we now live in the conditions in which spiritual and moral anarchy can flourish and it's flourishing our cultural mantras right out of scripture take it easy and have the time of your life and sadly we see society and people becoming less human. We're dying a slow spiritual death. Well, that's been the story throughout all civilization. I'm saying nothing new here. I admit that. But what's of particular concern is this. The values and character traits of those who claim to be Christ followers are often not all that different from culture. Why? Simply put, God's people find themselves contaminated with the germ of excessive self-indulgence. I love the emphasis Jason's calling us to, community. Uh, The if group, Louise shared a lot about it with me, community, not self-indulgence. Well, I think I'm gonna skip a whole paragraph here because this sounds pretty heavy. (laughs) I make no apologies for that. It's heavy enough the way it is here. I want to move to this. A man comes, and I I was going to just say how we can personalize relationships in the Christian church. We can use people. We're not immune to that. We're not immune, not just to this greed that I was telling you about for me in Richmond. It expresses itself in other ways. My individuality, my territory, my this, my that. It's community. So we have a man coming to Jesus, looking for justice. Jesus ignores the plea. Instead, in the hearing of everyone, Jesus tells a parable about the perils of greed. And some of you might be saying there, well, we want to hear grace, and where is the grace in all of this? Uh, You have, I think you have a quote. Did you put the quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the bulletin? I didn't look. Uh, There's a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's in your bulletin. Uh, in his book the cost of discipleship right near the beginning of the book he says cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church we are fighting today for costly grace grace that acknowledges that Jesus Christ God the Son God the Father gave God the Son and he paid for our misfortune our sin everything about wrong in us with his blood so that we could be forgiven and freed." yes God forgives all sin Past, present, and future, but Jesus can't and won't overlook the practice of sin in our lives. Grace cost God the life of His Son. Jesus knew if the man in the crowd were to get what He asked for, it would only take him further away from God. And Jesus is about the business of bringing people into closer intimacy with God. Grace at times must embody what focus on the family used to refer to as tough love. We had a vision statement, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Some of you haven't heard it in our last church. And the vision statement, had, among other things, said, Jesus loves us too much. Uh, no, Jesus loves us just the way we are, not as we should be. That was one of the birdie statements. That was followed by a statement saying, Jesus loves us too much to let us remain the same as we are tough love. Well, here comes grace. It doesn't take you long. Uh, in the context, it's, it's important. We see later uh, Jesus telling uh, a story, and we see the real tender part of Jesus, the tender side of the grace that Jesus lived and proclaimed and personified. He uh, tells a parable. Uh, after telling his disciples the parable, Jesus continues the subject, it says, with his disciples. He tells them not to fuss about the food on the table or about the latest fashions and clothing. He says how our inner life is far more important than the external things. A- and Jesus draws their attention to God's kinder care of the birds and to the beauty of the wildflowers. And those two birds are actually from our foreshore. I, I put the scriptures in the pictures, my brother's pictures. A- and-, and then he said how much more God will do his best for us. And I love how the message put how he concluded uh, Luke chapter 12, that particular section. He says, what I'm trying to do here is get you to relax, not to be so preoccupied with getting, so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and how he works fuss over these things, but you both know God and how he works. Steep yourself in God reality, God initiative, God provisions you'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Don't be afraid of missing out. You're my dearest friends, says Jesus. The Father wants to give you the very kingdom itself. And what an incredible statement. You're my dearest friends. Jesus makes that statement about us. Jesus wants us to find our identity not in things or wealth or power or influence, but in this reality of a personal, loving relationship with the Father who wants to give us the very riches of the kingdom itself. The very purpose of why God created human beings, he wants to give us that. Well, this morning, Jesus clarifies a basic decision each of us individually and what Lakeside Community Church must make. Will we use our any energy monies? Will we use our budget and our programs here to fill a bigger barn, to make our house bigger and better? Or will we use our energy, our budget, to develop lively, loving relationships uh, with others and with the Father, with our neighbor, the neighbor in this area, the neighbor in Salmon Arm? I'm going to go more on the tenderness of Jesus. I want to conclude with some of these comments. Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave you with. I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. This peace would come through the outpouring of the Spirit, according to John 14 then uh, receiving this peace means we must change our grasping, controlling stance to one of openness and trust. The only thing we can grasp without damaging our soul is the hand of Jesus himself. And it's always extended for us to grasp. Pray that the spirit of Christ within us would order our days and control our thoughts. That's what it boils down to. For the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace, says Paul. We can have as much of Jesus and his peace as we want. We can have as much of Jesus and his peace as we want through thousands of correct choices each day. And the most persistent choice we faced uh, is whether to trust Jesus or to worry. We'll never run out of things to worry about but we could choose to trust Jesus no matter what. Jesus is an ever-present help in trouble, as the psalm says. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, his presence will always bring peace. Jesus tells the story of a man who used his considerable means to build bigger and better barns. The man said, self, you've done well. You've got it made and can now retire. Take it easy and have the time of your life." The psalmist paints a picture of a different person, one firmly rooted in the relationship with God. That person prays, God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. Like a baby content in its mother's arms, my soul is a baby content. Wait for God. Wait with hope. Hope now. Hope always. Well, here are two very different people displayed by the scripture behind me with two very different sources of contentment. Which person best reflects where your heart is today? Let's pray. Loving Father, you're not here, and you didn't come to judge us. You came to set us free. It's incredible. Anytime we reflect on the, uh, and I love what Jason said again, and when we reflect on how you became a human being, how you, the creator, would enter into our life. It's hard to to imagine anything more than that your love and your your confronting us in our lives only is because you want us to become closer to you and more real, uh, more whole, healed. And you want us to be able to hear you and find you leading in our lives in every aspect of our life. Father, help us to hear these words today and, and let it percolate in our minds. And we pray that you re- uh, reveal to us any area of our life that we might just be holding back from you, that we might be grasping and clinging to. And we pray for the grace of your spirit to free our hands of to pry them loose from grasping and to raise them in the hands of praise to you and receive everything you have for us with open arms. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.